Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Andre, co-founder and CTO at Vox Implant, and they discuss how Vox Implant's communication platform as a service enables developers to easily build complex communication solutions. How Vox Implant has been serverless since before serverless was a thing, and why individual contributors should think twice about whether or not they want to move into management. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Can you just give me like start out with just like a brief overview from like when you got started into technology to you starting Vox Implant, like your whole story? So when I was like a small boy, I got the first PC in like age of 10, I think. And when I studied at school, uh, I found that programming is quite in the, an interesting thing. And uh, I usually uh, wrote some small programs that my sister was required to write, but she didn't want to. Uh, yeah, and after that, I went to the university, grade one, one of the most famous in Russia. I, my first uh, job was like second grade in university. And since that, I'm in software, software development doing all this stuff. So we started uh, creating things in uh, web telephony in like 2007, right? The first product that we created was called Flash Phone. It is, was the first web soft phone ever existed. We didn't have any idea how to make money of it. So we just mm, gave our users an option to make some free calls to anywhere they wanted and didn't charge them at all because we didn't know how to how to do it. But this spending of money gave us some interest from media and uh, from enterprises who wanted to license our technology. So then we created a software business. We uh, sold some software licenses. But it wasn't uh, very good, to be honest, because we didn't want to, and we didn't have any idea how to sell it abroad. And because we are from Moscow, we just worked on inbound requests. Uh, we didn't make any active sales. And then we created Zingai service, which is a click-to-call solution for websites. It is still live. You can check it. But we recommend everybody to migrate on Voxaplan because it's a newer solution. It's on more modern technologies than Zingai is. So... That's uh, the story in short. And uh, in 2013, we created Vox Implant, a cloud communications platform, which uh, used WebRTC and uh, which used Flash by the time. There was no WebRTC, right, when we started. Uh, it appeared like in 2011. I don't remember exactly. Um, but when we started, there was no WebRTC. We used Flash for voice calls. And, well, it's better than nothing, but as a, as a technology for real-time communications, it's not so good, to be honest. It was not so good because now, you know, the Flash is... Is off. There's no flash at all. I think it's good that there's no more flash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it has some issues, right? It has some flaws and a lot of, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I actually got to interview one of the people from Adobe who, when they were making the transition from disk to software as a solution, like web platforms. It cost them like a billion dollars. It was like a huge bet that they were making that you know the cloud was the right way to go. But ultimately, it was the right way to go, and it ended up working out pretty well for them. Yeah, subscription-based uh, services 
is usually better than one one time sales. Yeah. So why why did you even like the first telephony project you did? Why why did you do it? You could have just picked up a phone and called somebody. <laughs> well, uh, because first we were. By the time I worked, uh, and oh, all of us, oh, all, all the founders of the Voxel plant, we worked at a company that developed voice over IP software. So we were quite familiar with it. And by the time there was no such solution, and because we were students, basically, it was even before we graduated from the university, it was interesting for us. We just thought, why, why can't we do it? So we did. We have never thought that uh, it would uh, evolve in such a project like Voxel plant. It has like 200 plus employees and all this stuff. It was just, it was a, basically a, a great idea to start with, but we, we didn't have any idea how to make money of it, right? We just started as developers. We bought some, some server that was staying at home with one of us. We didn't uh, even use data center, right? <laughs> so it really was a pet project that evolved into a great business. So you three were working at a, at a company together that was in this space. Yeah. And then you decided to do this other project together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tell me about the other two founders. Who are they? What do they do? One of them, uh, Alexi, is uh, is our CEO right now. So he's responsible for all the company vision and uh, general stuff. By that time, he was a developer as well. When we started third guy, um, uh, he is more about sales and business development. Well, he studied with us at a technical university, but he didn't really <laughs> get many of it. So he's more about marketing, sales, and all this stuff. So that's exciting. So they handled like the sales side of things. Was he working sales at the other company too? Is that their background? He was working uh, at the marketing department. Yeah. So that that's cool that you were able to combine your different skill sets in order to start a business. Yeah, that was great much. And now you've grown and expanded over the past 10 years. Now you're this big company. Man, that's got to be a, a, a lot of stress growing that fast. Tell me about some of the things you learned along the way. It's quite easier to be a small company than a big one, right? So when you have like 10 people or even like, I don't know, 50 people, it's quite easy to manage. And uh, at, least you, at least you know what they do, right? Because when you have 200 plus people, you basically can't know them all by name, right? Because there are new hires uh, going on constantly and some people leave. When uh, there was uh, like in your party recently, I told those people and I couldn't tell name of like third of them. So it's quite stressful to rely on people that you don't even know, right? Comparing to <laughs> when you start business and you know, there are three of you and you know each other for, for a lot of years. And it's quite more stressful, right? To rely on people that you don't even know who they are, but you have to. So you rely on like systems and processes and your culture? Uh, yeah, I rely on uh, tech leads who I know pretty well. And I hope that they know what they do and they know who they hire and uh, how they handle all these people. What are your responsibilities like today? Are you writing code? Are you managing the technology organization? It mostly uh, it is mostly management to be honest, uh, and all the architectural stuff, right? Because tech leads are good in their own field, but when it comes to overall architecture, uh, I'm still in charge, and it's good for me. Because if I do 100 uh, 100 management, I wouldn't be happy at all, right? 
So I don't uh, write code too much these days because I don't have time to, to do it properly and uh, to take some major tasks, right? Because I won't be able to do them in time because I have many other, other things to do. But uh, there are some small projects inside companies that I still maintain. One of them is uh, our Python SDK that I maintain myself and some other internal tools just to be still <laughs> in the tech, right? Because you can't be a CTO without writing any code at all. It's impossible. Oh, yeah. I so my background is like I wrote code for 17 years pretty much every day. And then when the podcast started to get popular, I noticed that there was like weeks I would go without writing code. And I missed it a lot for about the first year. And then after the first year, I just enjoy so much understanding people and how they work and like planning. And for me, the my love of programming was because it was a way I could create. So I was like creative and like programming allowed me to create. But then I found that I could create with people and teams. And for some reason that just to me was more exciting. And so I don't, I feel bad for saying this, but I don't really miss writing code every day. Like I really, really enjoy getting to talk to great people like you and getting to grow a business and helping people like, you know, the next generation of leaders, helping them grow, sharing the mistakes that I've made and, and, you know, watching people do well, you know? Well, it's personal. So it uh, may be great for you, but uh, I personally prefer to write at least some code, right? <laughs> because I like it. Yeah. So I get to talk to a lot of CTOs <laughs> and, uh, you know, we make lots of notes and things like that. And there's a certain type of CTO that really likes to code even later. And one of the things that they do, and I'm just sharing this with you, um, is they will make something called the office of the CTO. And what that'll be is it'll be a small team of people that'll work on really cutting edge projects that will probably fail, but if they succeed, they would really help the company or things that the company needs. And it's just this small team that works directly with the CTO. And then the CTO will hire like a management, like obviously that somebody who knows how to code, somebody who knows how to structure code, knows how to at least be a great architect, right? And they'll hire that person to manage the technology side of the organization, the people and the process type things. And then they get to spend their time building really cool, unique, interesting things. And that's what they do. Well, um, to my point of view, it seems a bit egoistic, right? Just uploading all the all the stuff you don't like to other people and uh, giving, your, giving yourself tasks that you like. It may be uh, good if a uh, company is bigger than ours, I think. But uh, for our size, I think it's a bit of an overkill hiring another person to manage all the uh, tech leads, all the development stuff. I think it's a bit early, to be honest. Oh, yes. So it's definitely whatever, you know, you feel because you have all the variables, but I was just, I was sharing it from a perspective of it's, it's something some people do. And I didn't even know that was an option. And I've met people who were very unhappy as their company grew and they really didn't like management. And then for them to find out that that's an option and then do it, uh, makes them happy again. You know, they're like, I didn't even think that that was an option. Like, are you allowed to do that? <laughs> yeah, you're allowed to do whatever you want, man. That's why you started a company, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't say that I'm unhappy, right? So because I, I managed to find some time to write code. It's it's enough for me. So to, to keep some balance, right? Yes, yeah, and it's important. So I'm curious, uh, for people that don't understand 
Can you explain what serverless is? Uh, serverless is um, a technology that uh, allows some developer, you, for example, to build some solution without managing any infrastructure at all, right? So Voximplant is a serverless communications platform, uh, and we provide tools to create some call flows, some call scenarios, or messaging uh, applications that are being uh, executed in our, in our cloud. You don't need to maintain any software, asterisk, PBX, or any other you know, open source tool. You just uh, write code uh, directly in our IDE, in our cloud, and uh, it is being executed right uh, in our cloud. So you don't need to worry about uh, scaling, about security, about connectivity to public telephony network. We handle all that stuff. You just need to write code and think about what actually is important for your business, not how the telephony works. Is it, do you have to be a, it's it's very code-based, you have to be a software developer to use it? Currently, yes. Uh, currently, Vox Implant uh, requires uh, JavaScript skills to create a call scenario because we have JavaScript engine uh, in our platform. Unfortunately, there are no other, langu other languages by, by now, but we're thinking about um, maybe adding other languages option or maybe creating some no low-code or no-code solution on top of Vox Implant to make it uh, easier for non-developers or for developers who don't like JavaScript because there are many types of developers who basically don't don't use it, like mobile devs uh, or some people who hate JavaScript. There are so many of them. Uh, so Do you support anything like CoffeeScript? Currently, no, but we are planning to create tools that uh, will allow developers to embed, integrate Vox Implant with their repositories uh, CI/CD functionality, and so they can add transpiling from CoffeeScript or from TypeScript into the JavaScript. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but uh, it should be available in the near future, I think in Q1. So wait, let me get this right. By creating the ability for Vox Implant to be part of their CI yeah, deployment, exactly. that's the ability you're creating. And then they could just go put coffee, you know, write it in CoffeeScript, it would compile down and then go into that. Yeah, I think there are compilers for very many languages these days to JavaScript. I think you can even compile C++ to JavaScript if you like to. Um, but we, we don't recommend it, right? But you can. Yes, you can do a lot of strange things with code that we don't recommend. <laughs> I've seen people write code in the most strange ways. One of the one of the most interesting ones was when um, there was some testing framework. I think it was like Cucumber came out, and they would like dictate all of the rules in these large blocks of text. And to me, it was just so foreign the first time I saw it. And I typically, you know, I, my background's recently is Ruby. So, uh, you know, like RSpec using test systems and Ruby and the way that you get to assert things and test things there makes a lot of sense to me, but writing it out with like cucumber, it was like plain English, writing the whole thing out. I was like, that is a whole other level. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's actually fun that when I interviewed, uh, QAs, right. Many of them told that they don't want to work with cucumber, right. At all. They want everything but cucumber. <laughs> yep yep because it confused me when i saw it and then i saw there was a whole book about it and there was people but i just for me it didn't click some other type of testing clicked i i would read uh sandy metz uh i think that's her name she was um a author that would write a lot about 
uh, writing test in, in Ruby and she would reference bikes a lot. She was really into you know biking, riding bicycles. And so a lot of her examples included that. And it was really easy. She re- explained everything super simple because there was a time when I didn't test. And then there was a time when I did, and it was a difficult transition. When you got started in software, did you start testing like day one, line one, or did you write code for a while that you didn't test and then learn to write tested code? Uh, well, of course we did some tests, right? But uh, the first QA we hired was like 2015, maybe. So like a few years after we started uh, Plant, we, we, uh, we hired the first QA proper one. Uh, but you as a developer, like when you first started writing code, just in your personal life, when you were younger, um, did you, when you learned, did you learn to write test-driven development from the, from the beginning or did you write other code and then figure it out? Oh, I, when I started developing, I was just writing code, right? <laughs> I, was a, I was a student. You shouldn't expect too much from a student, right? yeah i mean i learned to write code or write tests when my projects started to grow and people really depended on them to run their business and then you know every time a bug would come in we had learned to write a test for it and then that's how we started building and then we went around and you can get crazy with tests like you can write too many tests you can write fragile tests you can write all, all sorts of things so learning how to write test the correct way or the correct way for your project or use is is an art almost yeah it's uh, it's important to select proper type of tests right because for example we uh, started to write very many tests uh, for one of our apis and then we found out that it's basically more time efficient to test them manually because Writing uh, an automated test for some complex solution may take like weeks, while the manual test takes like an hour. And uh, even if you perform this test like one once in a week, it's still more time efficient. Yeah, there's a we could talk about tests forever. (laughs) (laughs) I got a long time ago. I got to interview one of the people that was uh, like one of the first. I, I think he was. They were working on a like a stock market software for the Netherlands or for Amsterdam over there. And they were working on like some of the first uh, testing, like the concepts of testing. They were like the more modern ones that they were working on, you know, when they moved from like mainframes to more modern stacks. And uh, he was, he was a much older guy, but it's so cool to be able to talk to somebody who's like 60, 65, 70, and they'll talk about testing. I mean, (laughs) I don't, I don't connect talking with my grandparents about software development. Yeah. By the way, for stock market software testing, it's quite important, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And not only it should work, it should, be, it should work really quickly, really, really quickly. Oh, yeah. And uh, all right. So I want to talk a little bit about some leadership stuff. Is that okay? Yeah. Cool. So we get questions all the time from you know, up-and-coming engineers that are moving you know, into leadership. Uh, trying to transition and take on more responsibility about how to do it, you know, mistakes to avoid, things like that. But let's say that there's an engineer, you know, listening, and they're right. They're, they're like writing code. They're doing some hiring, but they want to, you know, take that next step into leadership. What insight would you give them? Well, they should think twice if they really want to, because if you like become a team leader or um, become a CTO, you 
we'll spend le way less time writing code and uh, doing all the engineering stuff. And if you really liked that and you will miss it, it may be an issue for you. And it's also important that leading a team and writing code is completely different uh, set of skills, right? So if you feel that you're not very good in communications and all these soft skills and small talks, you need to train them because otherwise you would have an issue. You can't yeah. become a, a good leader just being a good engineer. You may be, uh, but you need proper people that you work with because they should be uh, quite self-assured and they, they should know what they do and they should uh, respect you for your skills, not for your leadership skills. It's quite important to find the right people. You just kind of, you just get experience. You just roll with it. You go with the, I mean, your company's growing fast. You're having to do difficult things. You have these two business partners that you work with. They're doing difficult things. You're kind of all sharing and exploring together. So, you know, probably those two people had a large impact on your leadership style and your development there. Yeah, probably. But uh, I think we three are quite different people uh, with uh, different characters and uh, different uh, managing techniques, right? So I wouldn't say that uh, we take any good ideas from one each other. We try to do everything ourselves as we think it's proper to do. And uh, I think I wouldn't say that we fail, right? Because uh, we have 200 plus people, 250, as far as I remember. So if we were not that good, I think we would have failed by this stage. Yeah, well, I'm glad you didn't because it's, <laughs> it's fun to get to talk with you. So tell me a little bit about uh, how you hire engineers. Like, What's your process for hiring engineers? The first thing to hire a good engineer is to hire a good HR person, right? <laughs> it's uh, the first step. Because I, I remember like five or six years ago, it was enough to uh, put uh, a job description to a job board and that's it. You get a lot of response and uh, you can easily hire an engineer and a good one. But these days you need to like pray or... Uh, First, you need to hire a good HR. They need to pray. And there is a lot of job to be done for each other. They, they tell me that they like message like 100 people and get one or two responses these days. So it's immense. Yeah. And so if people are listening that are in the telephony industry, or what's the acronym? It's CPASS. What does that stand for? Communications Platform as a Service. So you're hiring right now if people are engineers in that space and they're interested in working with a fast-growing company? Yeah, we do. But the main issue is that uh, we have a development, Moscow or a development office in Moscow, Russia. So if there are some We have people... listeners there. We have listeners there. Okay. Отлично. Прекрасно. I know like six words. I know how to say like excellent, uh, floor, uh, like table, like side table, and then a bunch of really bad words. <laughs> well, you should know them uh, if you plan to visit Russia because you need to understand when someone is trying to offend you, right? So when we, our last episode, when we were talking, you were telling me about like the AI being trained on different languages. What are you guys doing with AI? We use AI currently for us um, for machine detection. So when you place an automated call, it's quite important to understand whether a person uh, picked up uh, the call or was it some voicemail or IVR. 
So we use uh, AI technologies for that. Uh, currently, we support uh, mostly Russian language, but uh, we recently hired a specialized team for that. So we're working on uh, Spanish, English, and other languages these days. Well, that's cool. How much data do you need to train a model to figure out if a person picked up or an answering machine picked up? Well, um, we need about a few thousand, maybe 10,000 of very short samples, right? Of first, like three or four seconds of, of each call. So it's uh, it's not very... A uh, big amount of audio files, right? But you need a lot of samples and they should be different. So you need to find like thousands of people, thousands of different voicemails of each of each type because uh, every carrier has uh, its own template. And actually, these days it's even more complicated because I don't remember, was it last year or the year before? Some carriers started introducing AI-powered answering bots for for customers. So if you have a mobile phone from uh, one MVNO carrier in Russia, they offer you uh, this bot, they call it Oleg, because it's uh, the name of the founder of the company. And this bot picks up the phone and tries to communicate with, uh, with the caller and check, out, check whether it's uh, a person or some phone spam, survey, and all this stuff that we don't like. Because I don't know about the States, but in Russia, you can have up to, I don't know, 10 or 15 calls each day with some advertisements and other stuff that you really don't need. So it makes sense, but we try to make solution that can uh, sort of detect this type of voicemail. And well, we don't aim to overcome it and to make it think that we are person, not bot. Uh, we just want to detect it properly. So our customers know whether their call was answered by a person or by a machine. A few years ago, um, it was either Google, I think it was Google or Apple, probably Google. They did this experiment and they showed like a bot calling and booking. I think it was an, a, an appointment of some sort. And it was hilarious because they were sounded like a human. It, you know, interacted. I think they made a restaurant reservation or booked some type of appointment. Yeah. Have you been following that? I don't think so. I, I'm not sure whether this project su succeeded or not. I know for sure that it was available only in English when they launched it. I'm not sure about it these days. This uh, voicemail bots actually work. Yeah, they work. So like, <laughs> I think it's going to be amazing in the future. I'm going to say, you know, hey, Alexa, you know, do this or do that. And it will be able to interface with a human versus just like if it had an API to actually send me a pizza, you know, yeah. or an API to actually order me a book. Like for it to be able to interact, like, hey, Alexa, call my, my grandmother and tell her this, you know, that'd be interesting. Yeah, but you should... You're unlikely to, to, to trick your grandmother. She'll know that it's not you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The next step after they get it to where it sounds like a human and can correctly call and do these things is for you to then put your voice into it. And so now it can be you. And then we don't even need to exist as humans anymore. Machines can just run everything. Actually, it's possible these days, at least uh, Yandex, Russian tech company, created brand voice uh, solution in there text-to-speech engine. So you uh, need like a few hours or a few, a few dozens of hours, I don't remember exactly, of your speech. And they will train their text-to-speech engine for your voice and you will be able to use it to say anything. So now you, really? you actually can create a voice board that will 
pretend to be you and uh, we'll call your grandmother and uh, discuss her daily things. I remember in the early 2000s, those uh, like soundboards, so you could go on the websites, you could click all the big buttons and make them say different thing for print calls. Yeah. <laughs> things are different, right? Things are very different. You could do so many illegal things and <laughs> like, that's what kids did. Like, oh, I just hacked NASA satellite. You know, there was a kid in my state who had done that. Um, and people really didn't know how to deal with it because it was kind of like computers. They really didn't understand them. Uh, but now they crack down hard. Like somebody um, uh, had done something where they imitate, like hacked Elon Musk account and said, <laughs> donate crypto or whatever. And I haven't followed up on the case, but I know that they were in a lot of trouble and likely going to jail. And they were like a kid. I was like, you know, if you're if you're not mentally mature enough, like we should be more lenient with the kids, you know. Well, uh, if kids uh, did something that cost somebody thousands of dollars, that uh, or even more, it should be somehow handled. Oh yeah, you should definitely do something, but you shouldn't treat them the same as a 30 year old adult because yeah. you, I mean, you're over 30. Right. Um, and so there's a big, big mental change from 17 to 25, 26, 27. And then once you have a kid, there's another big change because it goes from all your hobbies and your stuff to like, how do you make these little humans grow up carefully? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you have a little human, right? I have two little humans. Yeah. <laughs> Boys, girls? Uh, one boy and one girl, boy of uh, age of seven and girl age of five. I have different types of little humans. What do they think of you? Well, they are not allowed to think bad of me, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And uh, if they do, it's their issue, right? Yeah. Do they understand that you're like an entrepreneur? Do they? Are you teaching them about money and things like that? Like yesterday or two days ago, I told my daughter that uh, if she wants to steal some chocolate and her brother sees it, uh, she should share with him so he wouldn't tell us that she did it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You're teaching her how to adapt in the real world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, well... I can basically say that don't take it, right? But they're, cool. yeah. they're not that young. So I should give some real world advice to them. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> this is great. Let's say people are listening and they're in the CPAS world, right? They're in that world, or maybe they're thinking about getting into it. You know, why do people buy Vox Implant? Why do they use it? Is it to build call centers? Is it to build automated one-off scripts? Like how do your customers use it? Well, uh, there are different solutions, but uh, there are some of them that are, that are most popular, I think. The first one is uh, automated calling campaigns. We don't recommend to use it for uh, any advertisement, right? M make it clear. We obviously can't track uh, all of them, but uh, we think most of them understand us correctly and do all the only legitimate stuff. Uh, one of recent projects was, I'm really proud of it, it was for... Ministry of Healthcare of some province in Spain. Uh, and it's, it is an ongoing project, uh, so it wasn't one time. Uh, it was an automated call, call in for um, COVID vaccination. So they really saved time for a lot of employees uh, that could do other, other stuff uh, rather than 
calling everyone and re- yeah, you appointed for vaccination next Thursday. It's uh, so um, automatic call campaigns. The, the second solution that is quite popular is uh, PD, uh, cloud PBX. So you can build a cloud PBX on top of Oxenplant and embed it into your own, uh, for example, CRM system. There are a few CRM vendors that chosen Oxenplant as a solution to embed te- telephony into their products. We are quite happy with them because uh, they have a lot of small customers and they're quite consistent. It's, it's great. Another uh, popular solution these days is Dialogflow integration. Are you aware of Dialogflow? No. Uh, Dialogflow is a solution by, uh, made by Google, which is basically a, a voice bot, right? So it's the one that we described before, but the other way. So it's decided uh, it's designed to be called. So you make a call to, to Dialogflow bot and it communicates with you in some way using some scenarios that was designed by a developer. Uh, and perform some tasks or collect some information. So it's basically a voice bot. And so we found that from the uh, customers that signed up for Vox Implant in some months, I don't remember which one, like May, uh, when we checked the stats, 10% of people uh, used Dialogflow integration. So AI solutions are really trending these days, and why we are thinking of integrating them deeper into, into Vox Implant. Seeing the advancement of AI happen so rapidly over our lifetimes, what do you think of like Elon Musk and the neural implant? I have read uh, recently uh, some news about uh, a person making a tweet using neural implant. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So I'm not sure how this works, right? But uh, I think that it's it's a great solution because there are many people that many people who have no ability to communicate using conventional ways like speech writing and all this stuff and it's really important and if it makes writing faster i would be for it yeah <laughs> because sometimes i i think that it takes uh, quite a lot of time to write your ideas properly and if it goes right from your brain to uh the laptop it would be great that would be great and then you just think brain laptop and then it money goes into your bank account and you're good yeah or from your bank account and you're not so good Oh, what else did you want to talk about today? We've got a couple other things. One of the questions that that I wanted to ask is the difference between Vox Implant and Twilio. There are a few points that we are different in. The first one is uh, the architectural design. When we started Vox Implant, we created this as a serverless platform from the very first day, right? So there was not even a word serverless these days, but we created <laughs> a serverless platform. So you, uh, for a basic solution, you don't need to have any server yourself. You can develop everything on Vox Implant itself, and it will work. Uh, in Twilio case, it's the other way. So Twilio always communicates with some web service to get instructions on what to do next. Later, they introduced Twilio functions, which is, uh, well, basically they host web servers themselves, right? And they communicate with their own solution. So it's more reliable than communicating with customer solution over the internet. For uh, writing more complicated solutions, I think uh, it's harder to use. To create something easier, it may be it may be simpler to do with Twilio, right? If you need something really, really simple. But if you need some more sophisticated solution, using this, uh, doing this at Vox Implant is really easier. Is it a large part of your business 
where people like move from like Asterix or Twilio and come over and you like have to help migrate them? Or is that like really rare? I don't think that it's uh, quite, uh, quite an often case, right? There are, f- there are a few customers that uh, perform migration from Asterisk or from Twilio. But the idea is that uh, if you uh, use uh, Twilio or Voxenplant for, for more than uh, basically um, basically an SMS solution or uh, a phone service, it's quite hard to migrate, right? Because you are um, integrated really deeply and uh, you use a lot of features from a CPaaS platform. And it's um, you need to have really strong arguments to migrate. So it's, it's hard. It's good though, because like, while you won't get a lot of people that migrate often, one of the things is the people that build on your system will likely stay. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of migration in that industry. Yeah. Uh, for example, there are other companies that created compatibility uh, lawyers uh, for their CPAS platforms. There are some who work the same way as Twilio does for easy migration, but we decided to go our way. And uh, yes, we discussed creating Twilio migration tool uh, a lot of times, but uh, we decided not to do it because it's it's not a good way to start, right? Because if you convert all the Twilio um, uh, XML documents to works and plant scripts, it wouldn't be something that you could be able to maintain, right? Because it would be generated code that is basically a, a lot of letters. That's it. It's not a proper way to develop with works and plants. So we decided not to create it, uh, not to create such a migration tool. Uh, we decided to explain people how to work with Voxelab properly and create more examples, more uh, solutions on our GitHub. Uh, but we don't want people just to use some code generation tool for m- migration from Twitter. Are you guys doing anything with uh, low code or no code? Uh, we have Voxelab Kit, which is basically a no code uh, contact center but its functionality is limited to contact center and you can't create all the stuff that you can create with Vox Implant uh, using this visual editor. But we are thinking about creating a no-code solution for Vox Implant. We understand that uh, these days developers are very, very busy, really busy, and uh, creating a no-code solution that can be used by a guy with not so extensive technical skills uh, can be available for our product. We think that it can move out to the next level. Anything that uh, we're going to create uh, even next year because it may be a bit confidential. Oh, uh, okay. So then you're going to have to come back next year and share what you're, what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.